0: This latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabon and today I'm very excited to be joined by Juan Cole. Juan is Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. He's the author of myriad books, articles, chapters and reports with extensive media experience. He's the author of uh, Mohammed, Prophet of Peace, Amid the Clash of Empires, Shiism and Social Protest, Napoleon's Egypt, Invading the Middle East, Sacred Space, and holy war the politics culture and history of shia islam the list could go on he's the editor of the absolutely wonderful peace movements in islam which has just come out Um, and i have to mention whilst doing my homework for this podcast on his cv he lists 11 languages including and i I smiled when i read this i'm quoting here some uzbek so juan thank you so much for joining us it's an absolute pleasure Um, i'm really looking forward to this
1: well, thank you, Simon, for having me
0: in. It's a uh, it's a real, uh, real pleasure. It's something really uh, I've been really looking forward to doing. I remember reading your uh, your Shiism and Social Protest book when I first started out with my PhD. So uh, I've been been reading your canon of work for for a long time now, and thoroughly um, enjoying doing so. I must begin Juan by, by asking as I normally do um, what was it that, that got you interested in in Islamic studies and uh, in the Middle East more more broadly please
1: I think there were a couple of major things in my life that took me in that direction uh, one was that my father was in the US Army he was in the signal Corps uh, and in 1967. He had a posting uh, for 18 months in what is now Eritrea. Right. At that time, a part of uh, Ethiopia uh, at, at Asmara, where there was a, a, a U.S. Uh, base and um, a satellite receiving station. The United States had a uh, stationary satellite over the Middle East uh, that was surveilling the uh, and monitoring the region. Uh, and uh, at the time, the technology was such that you wanted a relay station high up. The, the signals didn't seem to penetrate down to the surface. Mm-hmm. So Asmara is uh, a mile and a half up. It was perfect for this purpose. And so I went to um, uh, part of uh, high school in, uh, in Asmara at the dependent school, and uh, Eritrea is in the Horn of Africa and is about a third Muslim. So there were mosques and there were Muslims and we had Muslim friends and I encountered uh, that religion and culture firsthand as as an impressionable teenager and became interested in it. And I think the other big thing was that uh, by the time we returned to the States in 1968, it was the uh, summer of love and the counterculture was in full swing. Uh, and the anti-war movement, and there was a, a great deal of interest in my generation in uh, Eastern religion, so we all remember when the Beatles went off to India uh, to, to be with uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, and uh, Sufism, uh, Muslim mysticism, was part of that scene, and I think the American youth mixed it all up together and uh, read eclectically. Certainly I did. So, uh, between my personal experience in Eritrea and uh, an interest in Sufism, which I have continued to maintain, it's not something I always write about, but it's something I'm, I read about and I'm very interested in. I think those were the two things that led me in this direction. And you may imagine my surprise when I started taking Arabic because. Uh, my readings in Sufism had led me to uh, think of Arabic as a spiritual language. Uh, that the first sentence in my textbook was about oil companies.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's quite the uh, quite the introduction to Arabic, I guess. Um, but also a wonderful way into to to this career. Um, I don't think we've ever had anyone talk about the Beatles and the, the sort of counterculture as a, as a direct inspiration. So that's, that's fascinating. I, you did a, a PhD in Islamic studies, is that correct?
1: That is correct. And what was that
0: focusing on then? Was that, was that on this, this burgeoning interest in, in Sufism? Or, or had you narrowed down your interest to, um, to, to Shia politics by that point?
1: I... Uh... When I was at an undergraduate at Northwestern University near Chicago, I uh, was a religion major, right? And I had an opportunity to go abroad for uh, two quarters of my senior year and write a senior thesis in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I gained a scholarship for that purpose. Uh, and uh, so I went to Beirut, and we had stopped, my family had stopped in Beirut on the way back from Eritrea uh, in 1968, and, and I I rather liked the city. It's quite beautiful uh, geographically, and uh, I was interested in the culture. So I, uh, having been there once, I felt confident in going back, and I did a senior thesis on Christian-Muslim relations, uh, there was a dialogue movement in the wake of Vatican II at the time. Uh, and uh, I tried to go back to do a, an MA at the American University in Beirut in uh, the fall of 1975 uh, when the Lebanese Civil War broke out, mm. which rather forestalled me from pursuing my studies Uh After a couple of months of hard fighting in the city, which we could see from our perch at the university, uh, the administrators called us all together and sent us away and said the university wouldn't be opening that year. Uh, I I went to Jordan for a while uh, to cool my heels and I was an auditor at at Jordan University uh, and then uh, applied to go to the American University in Cairo. Uh, And I did an MA there instead. Uh, And I felt, I don't know what it was, I felt incomplete about having had to leave Beirut because of the Civil War, and I was determined to go back. And I I went back in 78, 79, uh, and worked as a journalist and translator uh, for an English-language local newspaper. And, um, however, we thought the war was over, but it started right back up, uh, and I began to see there was no future for me in Beirut. Uh, so I applied to go to uh, for higher studies in the United States, and uh, I, I was admitted to UCLA. And yes, in 78-79, the, the big global news was the Islamic revolution in Iran, uh, the rise of the ayatollahs to power, the overthrow <clears throat> of uh, of uh, Mohammed uh, uh, Reza Pahlavi. And uh, so uh, by the time I got to UCLA... Uh, I hadn't given up my interest in uh, in, in Sufism, but um, I had become very interested in this social science question of uh, what, what were the roots of the power of the Shiite clergy that they could come to power in a country uh, in an unprecedented way. I mean, I don't think, aside from the Taliban more recently, there had been any Instance of a clerical core taking over a country. Um, countries were taken over all the time, but usually it was by military uh, juntas uh, uh, or, I suppose, occasionally billionaires. But uh, uh, this was an unusual thing to happen, and in fact, I think there was a crisis in American sociology over it because there was a sense that the world was moving towards a more secular frame and. Uh, uh, Religious revolution wasn't on the horizon. Uh, So the the degree I did at UCLA was uh, called Islamic Studies. But it was uh, the brainchild of uh, Gustav von Gunnabalm, the Austrian uh, Middle East scholar who had begun really as a specialist in Arabic literature uh, and then moved. uh, He fled the Nazis and was at the University of Chicago and in the United States, became very interested in cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he set this degree up as uh, as a history, a social science, uh, and two Middle Eastern languages. Uh, so it wasn't really what you would call Islamic studies from a Middle Eastern point of view. Um, <laughs> right. But... Uh, I did do uh, a fair amount of, of straight Islamics uh, at, during the degree, and of course
0: I had done that at uh, the American University in Cairo as well. That's fascinating. It's quite the, quite the intellectual journey, just to get to the, the point of doing the, the PhD. But uh, as well, it's, it's helpful to get an insight into, uh, into the roots of some of these languages, some of these 11 different languages. Um, well, quite? An, let's go a little bit further on i mean you've you've done your phd you're doing all these amazing things and one of the things that i love so much about your work is that it it doesn't fall neatly into disciplinary boxes and i hope you take this in the in the spirit that i'm meaning it it's not um something that would always be um be reducible to, to one disciplinary box. But it it straddles um straddles different questions. Maybe sorry, straddles different disciplines by asking questions that pertain to um the, the social world and the, the, the um the the ordering of society in, in lots of different ways. And and that's what I've really enjoyed reading the, the various texts of yours that have um, that have had a big impact on me. And um, one of them Perhaps the the one that's had the biggest impact is is sheism and social protest. So I I must ask you just a little bit about that, if I may. Um, for anyone who's not read it, it's it's an excellent text um, raising such really uh, such absolutely central questions to uh, understanding the the position of of sheism in um, in a changing environment and uh, sort of pushing back politically on, on some of the status quo conditions so could I ask you just um, maybe to elaborate a little bit on what you were trying to do with the project please um, with with Nikki Ketty
1: yes well I studied with Nikki Ketty at UCLA and she uh, had been um, you know i become the premier historian of modern Iran mm-hmm. in the United States uh, and you um, because of the Islamic Revolution, and then, you know, it had sort of side effects in, in other societies in Lebanon, where I saw the Shiites of Lebanon mobilize with my own eyes. In fact, I almost missed my plane out of, out of Lebanon back to coming to the United States, because uh, the, the Shiites were having a big demonstration, and it, it uh, interfered with traffic out to the airport. <laughs> Right, uh, and uh, so um, when I went to UCLA, and uh, and I had, uh, as I said, sociology as one of my fields, uh, and under the influence also uh, of um, of some faculty and graduate students, I became interested in uh, in uh, the work of uh, Charles Tilley, mm-hmm. uh, whom I knew slightly uh, later, uh, Chuck Tilley who was a great sociologist and who, whose work concentrated on uh, the conditions under which um, people protest uh, and uh, the ways in which crowds form uh, and uh, repertoires of, of uh, social activism and, and violence. Um, and uh, he, Tilly was a, both a sociologist and a historian. Uh, mainly working in France, but uh, uh, also had great comparative interests. And uh, I heard him give a talk on, uh, on uh, uh, the Zapatistas in, in, in Mexico once, and uh, it was full of insights. So I'm sure. Uh, Tilly and others, uh, you know, were working in, in the area of, of, of resource mobilization theory. And uh, it was a different way of looking at at crowds and and, and protests uh, than um, uh, than had, had been typical in American sociology. You know, Talcott Parsons and others were status quo sociologists. They were really interested in, in social order and how it's maintained. And, and Tilly was interested in, in how it was overthrown, but not from a, a you know schematic. Stalinist Marxist point of view, um, but using the tools of sociology. So that that interest in in, in social mobilization, resource mobilization, uh, which I, I uh, gained at UCLA, was really behind this. And I, Nikki and, and I were talking about doing an edited book um, uh, on. Uh, uh, Shiite activism in, in the early 80s and uh, i i proposed this title to her uh, uh, and uh, and she loved it and so of course she had the contacts to bring together a lot of those authors and i i helped as best i could and we, we co-edited this book so it's it's interestingly
0: a product not just of developments in in Iran and across the, the quote-unquote shia world but also Developments and um, frustrations at at American sociology.
1: Yes, I think so. Uh, I think uh, that uh, sociology, as I said, had uh, and, and anthropology as well in the United States uh, had you know been much influenced by uh, a kind of structuralism uh, and um, uh, and had gotten into a little bit of a rut. And you could see this in American anthropologists who uh, were structural functionalists and had gone off to the field, and they came back with these dissertations on how, you know, villages were functioning Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the global south. And uh, they would explain, you know, you function, how they were functioning well. And then five years after their book came out, the village would collapse. uh, And they were clearly missing something.
0: Yeah. So clearly missing something, and I guess what you're trying to do, and I think you do it really well, is offer a a, a different take that that pays uh, pays attention to a range of really important social, um, philosophical, religious dynamics. Not just in this book, of course, but uh, but across your others as well. Juan, we could spend a long, long time going through each of your your various texts um, one by one and it would be fascinating to do that for me and I'm sure for many others. But given the the slight time impediments and the the, the various pressures, I'd like to talk, if I may, about your recent text, Peace Movements in Islam, History, Religion and Politics, which came out with IB Taurus, uh, an imprint of Bloomsbury,
1: two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Well, it, it, it's um, a British date, uh, I think, was a couple of weeks ago. It's actually out tomorrow uh, on, on, on December, I should say, on, on uh, December 16th in the United States.
0: Well, congratulations, first of all. It's a, a wonderful text combining um, two topics that have produced a, a huge amount of material in and of themselves, but I've rarely seen combined. So uh, before you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the text, could you tell us the, the, the rationale for, for doing it, please? Uh,
1: there, there are lots of reasons that led me in this direction. Um, you know, as an Islamicist, uh, as well as a historian, uh, I've been dismayed for the last 20 years in particular, and in some ways it goes back beyond that. Uh, in the ways in which uh, Muslim civilization has put, been put on the, the sign of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as someone who has lived extensively and traveled in the Muslim world, uh, I, I'm very well aware that uh, violence is, is rare in, in much of the Muslim world. Uh, and um, it's just seemed to me that we've, we've in the North Atlantic world, we've developed a, a kind of obsession uh, with Islam and and, uh, and 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 connecting it to violence. Um, and so, I wanted to do a project, some projects that um, were corrective. Uh, there is certainly violence in the Muslim world, as as there is violence in much of the world. Uh, but uh, and I don't mean to at all to deny that or to take away from it. We've mm-hmm. seen horrible things uh, from the Al Qaeda attacks on uh, New York and Washington to, uh, to the rise of ISIL in Iraq and, and Syria, uh, these have been in Boko Haram in, in West Africa. Uh, these have been horrific events, and there has been violence of a religious nature. Uh, there's also been religious violence in India and Burma on the, on, the, on the part of Hindus and Buddhists, which somehow gets no press whatsoever. Uh, in the United States, uh, at least. And um, so so it's partly a corrective. But it's also uh, that I ha- have been reading in uh, the discipline of peace history, uh, which, you know, now has journals and uh, there's, in fact, an Oxford handbook of peace history coming out next uh, uh, summer, which I have an essay in. Uh, and so... Um, uh, it's. It seemed to me that there had been quite a lot of peace history written regarding Christianity,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but that there had been very little uh, with regard to Islam. And so uh, it seemed to me that this was a, a fertile ground uh, to, to make some uh, innovative uh, discoveries in
0: I think it's it's a really interesting gap that you're filling here. Um, I, as you say, there's 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 a great deal produced on on Christianity, but what I found particularly interesting was that this isn't just a a, a political treatise. It's not just a a sort of Islam and peace from a political angle or asking political questions about the relationship between Islam and peace, but it's. It's theological, um, it's about Islam itself, it's about philosophy, it's it's normative, and it's political, and it's historical. And as a consequence, it's hugely ambitious, and uh, it, it asks a lot of the reader, of course. But in that sense, I think it's incredibly rich and uh, an incredibly valuable text. Uh, Juan, for, for people who've not yet had the, uh, the opportunity to, to read it, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the themes that are discussed, please?
1: Sure. Well, uh, uh, Peace Studies uh, is eclectic, uh, I, I think. There, it's become professionalised, so there are a lot of Peace Studies programmes at universities which give degrees.
0: Yes. Uh, we give uh, one at Lancaster. Uh, I'm sorry? We give one at Lancaster. Do you? We uh, do speak. indeed, yes. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I, I spoke at the uh, Center for Peace Studies at uh, Liverpool. Right. University. Uh, I know they're prominent in the field. Uh, and so, and there are journals. Uh, and uh, so, th- there are lots of things, of course, one can address under the rubric of peace uh, studies. And uh, uh, they include, uh, you know, Philosophies of peace or the way in which religions intersect with uh, peace thinking. Uh, they also include uh, diplomatic uh, negotiations and uh, political aspirations, uh, as you say. Uh, so uh, the, I think the, the volume that I edited uh, reflects this wide-ranging character of peace studies. Um, uh, Johann Galtung uh, at the University of Oslo Uh, was the first holder of a chair in peace studies from 1955 and has been an important theorist of the field. And uh, he has identified uh, two kinds of peace, what he calls negative peace and positive peace. Negative peace is where there is no war. Yeah. Uh, And uh, that's, of course, a desirable condition. Uh, But it's not an analytical tool. And positive peace is what Galton thinks of as the things that people in society do that make for greater social peace. Uh, and so, of course, diplomacy would be one. Uh, but also, to the extent that conflict may derive from uh, privation, for instance, then uh, you know charitable actions and and uh, safety nets for the poor might become important in positive peace, Uh, just as an example. Uh, And so I think uh, the essays and uh, the the chapters in this book uh, uh, address both issues in positive and negative peace. Uh, And uh, as you say, I I, I, uh, went to the International Institute at the University of Michigan uh, with a colleague, uh, Samer Ali, uh, and we put forward a, a, a proposal that got funded. And it was through that funding that we were able to have two major conferences at the University of Michigan, out of which the bulk of these essays are, are drawn. Uh, and um, they run the gamut from, uh, uh, well, I write uh, on the Quran, uh, and uh, the peace verses of the Quran, which... To my mind, have been amazingly neglected in uh, academic scholarship, and which have been felt quite important in Muslim traditions, including the Sufi tradition. Uh, and um, uh, my colleague uh, uh, Alexander Knish, uh, who is a, a great expert in Sufism, uh, also contributes along those lines. Uh, and we have Asma Faridin, a medievalist, who talks about the ways in which the word jihad actually had been used by many Muslims uh, in a peaceful sense, mm. uh, and um, I know that uh, such an allegation uh, may, you know, raise snickers in, in some quarters, especially among Islamophobes. But uh, she cites the sources and uh, analyzes them in the original languages, uh, and uh, shouldn't shouldn't be dismissed. Um, and then you know uh, we get into the modern period, and one of the things that has struck me is uh, that you know in the era of the 1700s and 1800s into the early uh, um, into the early uh, 20th century, much of the Muslim world was uh, occupied by colonial regimes, uh, and of course. There were uh, major revolts against the uh, colonial imposition in Algeria uh, in the early days, and uh, of course the the Great Rebellion in India in 1857-58, which I've written about. But um, uh, for much of this era of two centuries of European colonial rule of uh, the global south, people got along uh, without much violence and in fact it's quite amazing if you think about it that uh, I don't think there were more than 15 to 25,000 British troops in British India mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: a country at that time of 300 million people uh, and uh, so they weren't Uh, They weren't revolting very often or very concertedly, uh, and and when they did finally uh, do so, of course, much of their action was nonviolent under the philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. So um, uh, we have some essays in the book that treat uh, the um, Pacific ways in in which Muslim colonized populations uh, reacted to to their colonization and uh, the, the Sufi uh, order of marids in senegal for instance um, explicitly rejected uh, jihad uh, on local grounds because they felt that uh, the, the phrase and the concept had been uh, misused by regional warlords and had caused a disruption of society and even contributed to uh, the slave trade, and uh, uh, and so Amadu Bamba, the the great Murid Sufi uh, founder, um, argued that uh, violence of that sort, uh, organized violence by Muslims, uh, to um, uh, uh, in in warfare was a privilege of very early Muslims uh, at the time of the Prophet, and it was uh, illegitimate to try to deploy it against the French colonial regime in the early 20th century, partially because the French were so powerful and and it would fail, partially because it would disrupt society and detract from people's uh, ability to practice Islam. Uh, And so um, uh, the Marids are explicitly a pacifist organization, Uh, as much so as the Quakers and Christianity, and yet uh, their philosophy of pacifism and the ways in which they made cultural arguments uh, against the French dominance instead uh, has been very little attended to uh, in in world history. Uh, And um, so we have a a wonderful uh, chapter by uh, Rudolf Ware, a great expert in this subject uh, in the book, uh, and then uh, we have a, a couple of essays on the Muslim reformer Rashid Ridha, mm-hmm. um, uh, Was more or less a Muslim liberal in the uh, period after World War One, and had grand hopes for the emergence of uh, a series of parliamentary governments in the Arab world uh, after they gained their independence from the Ottomans uh, at the end of that war, and who uh, it is argued um, by our authors w- were, was pushed uh, in the direction of, of a more Muslim uh, fundamentalism by his disappointment uh, with the failure of the Versailles uh, and, and San Remo uh, treaties to grant independence to the uh, to the Arab world. Uh, so Elizabeth Thompson makes this argument that there was a, a great betrayal of liberalism on the part of the colonial powers which then damaged the cause of, of liberal politics in, in the region
0: yeah this is where I think that the work of galton's really uh, really rich and interesting here this the sense of, of structural violence which is far more, far more nuanced of course than the um, or sort of contributes to the, the a far more nuanced reading of of violence and and peace, is really useful in in helping to, to to unpack the the complexities of of local context here. Um, the the various structures that are determining the actions of Rashid Rida, for instance, um, differ dramatically from the 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 verses that you're engaging with in the Quran that resonate. With, uh, with, well, in different ways across time and space. And I, I think that's one of the things that I found most, um, most interesting about this book, this use of a, of a peace studies scholar to interrogate the, the actions, the thoughts, the words, the deeds of, of Muslim thinkers, uh, clerics. Um, and I think it, it does something really novel, really different, uh, filling a really important gap here. Um, i I wonder though to i mean to what extent do you see similarities across the 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 chapters in that sort of galtungian way um I mean this might be something that's that's not really applicable given the the variety across the chapters but are there similar types of structures that we can identify that are conditioning the actions of of people that are if if this makes sense one
1: sure. Uh, Well, I I think that um, uh, some of the chapters do address uh, organizations which are engaged in activities of positive peace. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: And so the are in Senegal are an example, but then we have a chapter on Abdul Ghaffar Khan and his red shirt movement in the uh, pushtun areas of what is now northern Pakistan, uh, was then northern British India. Uh, And uh, again, you know, it's quite remarkable that uh, the Pashtun peoples have been tagged often uh, as, you know, the the British called them a martial race uh, in the colonial era, and and the Taliban hail from uh, that ethnic background, and so they've been put under the sign, sign of violence. But Abdul, uh, Abdul Bafar Khan uh, was a um, close associate of Mahatma Gandhi and developed uh, an Islamic um, philosophy of nonviolent non cooperation, which he instilled in his uh, followers, uh, the, the his servants of God, Khudai uh, uh, Khidmatgar, uh, and um, uh, worked for positive peace. Uh, and, and what's interesting to me is is that um, it's not passive. Positive peace is active. Sure. Yeah. And and so there were ways in which uh, they were resisting British colonialism. They were demanding independence uh, for 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 India, but they were uh, they were doing so with nonviolent tactics and, um, and 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 as an organization working for positive peace and doing charitable work as well. Uh, And uh, then we have a chapter by uh, a Bosnian scholar on, uh, after the the Bosnian War in the 90s, uh, Muslim women formed, uh, as did Christian women, formed uh, social service organizations that worked for a greater communal harmony and healing, uh, the traumas of the war, uh, and uh, developed Muslim philosophies of, uh, I would say, of a, of a feminist sort, uh, devoted to this work of positive peace. Um, and uh, then we have a, a chapter uh, late in the book uh, on uh, American Muslims in the Trump era, uh, who were under uh, under fire from uh, President Trump, um, uh, who, who deployed a range of Islamophobic uh, uh, rhetoric and, and tactics, uh, and and who often mobilized um, to uh, uh, for for positive peace work uh, in this in this period, uh, and I think you know we're, we're forced to be less reclusive than they might have preferred to be as as an immigrant, a largely immigrant community. Uh, but, and, and who came out um, more forcefully, but, but doing this positive piecework. So yes, I think that's a thread that goes through several of these chapters. And it's, it's
0: fascinating hearing you reflect on this and uh, um, the various different contexts that are, that are being explored in the book. I mean, linking um, Trump and Rashid Rida, for instance, is it's not something that I would, would expect to see in a, in a text, but it works really nicely and, and raises so many important and interesting um, philosophical questions about peace, um, and the nature of, of Islam in the, what well, in social worlds rather than the social world. So I think it's a really successful endeavour and one that I've really enjoyed getting to, to grips with. So Juan, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us today. I've really enjoyed it, much like I've really enjoyed reading your work over the years. So a huge thank you. I really appreciate it huge thanks to Juan for his time just now. I've really enjoyed chatting with him and reading his work over the years. You can find him on Twitter at jricole. That's at jricole. You can also read his wonderful website, which is juancole.com, but it's it's actually titled Informed Comment. So do check that out and do check out his wonderful new book, which we've spoken about here. It's absolutely fascinating. Well worth your time. So, as always, a huge thank you to you for your time, for listening to us across this past year. It's been a real pleasure speaking with so many wonderful people. So thank you so much. Please do take care. Please do like, subscribe, share, do all the things that you're supposed to do with these types of podcasts. But most importantly, take care of yourselves and your loved ones in
1: these rather dangerous times. As always, until next time.